show back from the, the 90s with Reginald Dell Johnson and a couple others. I actually like to know Urkel. Y'all remember Urkel? Um, you probably don't even remember his name. I don't even know what his name is. He's just Urkel, right? Nerdy kid. But it was an interesting show because it just talked about family, and, and I love those shows, Cosby Show, you know, things like that. You'd see those shows, and, you're, and you, you just kind of identify with certain things, and that's what made it a good show. It kind of sucked you in because you would see in those family characters, you'd see somebody in your family who was one of those people, right? Uh, or you'd see them do something go, oh, yeah, that's totally, you know, uh, this, this brother or this sibling or, or this mom or this dad or whatever. I, I actually thought that Felicia, uh, Felicia Richard uh, on the Cosby Show was like one of the best moms on all of television. I, that, was just, that was just me. It's like I wanted her to be my mom some days. I'm not so sure I wanted Bill Cosby to be my dad, but I wanted her to be my mom some days because uh, I just thought she was awesome. She, she was just awesome. But I think one of the most interesting things about what makes those television shows particularly uh, appealing to us, even today in some of the newer ones, and I don't even know what they are, is that we look at these ideals of what these idyllic normal families were. Now, for some of you who grew up in the, the golden age of television uh, when it was in black and white, and kids, basically what black and white is is that they take all the color out, and there's only like three different shades. There's white, there's gray, and there's black, and that's what television was. So that used to happen. I don't know if you all know that or not. But, but you saw these families, and it was like Ozzy and Harriet. Uh, um, let's see, what were some of the, the Leave it to Beaver. Uh, who's the other ones? Donna Reed, the Dick Dick. Father knows. Wow, you, get, you got all these, right? And so they, there was this interesting thing, and they were trying to depict this, this perfect family, right? Like, like this normal family. And then you had the Brady Bunch come along, and that really kind of shook television up a little bit because in the Brady Bunch, what you had was a, a dad with three boys and, and a mom with three girls, all with hair of gold like their mother, right? And, and it was this blended family. It was really kind of one of the first times we had seen a blended family before, particularly on television. Uh, and and it, was, it was interesting because during that time, what was happening was television was depicting what was happening in society because divorce and split families was, was on the rise, and so it was bringing in this normalization of reality of what was actually happening, but it was also trying to find a place where blended families could, could possibly find a, a reality to function. And, and so regardless of what your take is on that, I actually find that quite fascinating because whether you agree or disagree, it was really interesting to watch blended families try to live together and work those things out and all those other elements. Now, statistically, most of us in this room probably come from some measure of a blended family, and that's getting more and more. Uh, it's like 52.3%, I think, was the most recent statistic, uh, both inside the church and outside the church on what uh, divorce and remarriage rates are. And so we, we, we kind of, in, in my generation, um, those of us in our, our late 20s, um, we, we've kind of come to this place where we, we've got to a reality. <laughs> what's, what's so funny about that, right? I, I got a haircut this week. You can't tell how old I am. So. But, but we've come to this reality of what a blended family actually looks like and, and knowing the siblings that we've got to deal with. And, and, and so I don't know what your definition of family is, and I certainly don't know what your definition of normal family is, but, but I can tell you it's subjective, right? Uh, it, it certainly is subjective. There was a, a comedian many years ago, and I, I don't endorse 99.9% .9 of his work, but, but, but one piece of work that he did, his name was George Carlin. Um, <coughs> One piece of work that I, I do endorse would be Bill and Ted's Great Adventure and, and, and Bill and Ted's uh, Excellent Adventure and Bogus Journey. I, I do endorse his work on those two. I can't endorse anything else that he has to say, but George Carlin, he, he was known for just this filthy, filthy language. I mean, just awful. So bad, in fact, he actually was in a Supreme Court case that, that redetermined what free speech looked like and when it was a joke and when it was too far and whatever. And so... Like I said, I don't endorse those things, but, but, but I do endorse those two movies because they were excellent. Um, 
Some of you might ne never get that. But he said something that I thought was really interesting in a, in a quote up here, and I think I put it up here. Um, he, he said this. He says, he says, the other night I ate at a real nice family restaurant. Every table had an argument going on. Now, I, I tell you that to help you understand that here's George Carlin, and I don't know what his relationship with, with God was. I can tell you from, from his behavior uh, and from some of the things he said that he was either an, an, a serious agnostic or perhaps even an atheist or, or perhaps he believed in God, but he hated him. But George Carlin understood that when he looked at a family, he knew what a family was, and he knew what a family was in dysfunction, and he knew what a family looked like, and he could tell when they were arguing. Now, I don't know what your family looks like at a restaurant, especially when your kids are small or maybe when they come back from college and they're all of a sudden adults still on your payroll. It's the weirdest thing. I'm, I haven't figured that out yet. Still, still navigating those waters. But George Carlin could look at a family and say, I was at this nice family restaurant, saw everybody arguing the other day. And, and, and for him, I would probably say that's a, a normal family. And I would tell you, honestly, you probably would probably agree with me, right? Families fight. Families argue. Families don't get along. It's how you work through some of those things. But when you get this idea of what normal is and what normal looks like, it gets, it gets a little challenging. I mean, so what is normal? You know, years ago, there was a, a man who was uh, committed to a, 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 a mental institution, and at the mental institution, the director brought him in, and the guy says to him, he goes, well, tell me, he goes, uh, how do you determine who stays here and who goes and what level of care they get? And he goes, well, well, come here, I'll show you this test. And so they come in, and he fills up this bathtub, and he gives the man a spoon, a cup, and, and this bucket. And he says, empty the bathtub. And the guy says, oh, I know of this trick. He says, you think that I'm going to go with the spoon to show you how crazy I am, but really I need to go with the bucket because it's going to empty it a whole lot faster because that's what a normal person would do. And the doctor looks, looks right at him and goes, no, a normal person would just pull the plug. See, we have these, all these ideals of what's presented in front of us, and we try to determine what normal is, but in realistic, the, the, the truth of the simplicity of it was just, just pull the plug sometimes. And so whatever your ideal of normal is and whatever you think a family might look like, I, I want to tell you this morning that the, the primary thing that I'm trying to communicate to you today through, through God's word and just through the experiences that we have within our own families is this, is that, that families are a gift and that God actually gives us families. I know sometimes it's really hard to believe that this is a great gift. It's not like Christmas and I'm unopening a new bicycle some days, right? Because family's hard. Family's tough. Family knows everything about you. Family knows which buttons to push and how to hurt and how to do it quickly and efficiently and effectively, right? But, but, but God gave us families, and I believe, I believe that if you hear anything this morning is that family is God's way of growing his kingdom. I, I, think, I think that families is, is part of, the, of, of the, the, the follow through of the first institution that God put together of one man and one woman married together where, where they leave and cleave, mother and father, and the two become one flesh. And through that, the process of raising godly children, God has given the family to us as an absolute gift. And I think that we really need to stop looking at what normal looks like and start looking at what God says a family is and why he gave us that family and cherish that family and demonstrate God's love for, our, for us individually within that family so the rest of the world can see this and come to him. Because I, I think we're missing it whenever we have a, a family that, that, that a marriage ends in divorce, which is every other one right now, or we have a family that's blended and, and you have these sides that just don't seem to work out. Let me tell you, it's not ideal, but it's not wrong. But it absolutely is wrong for us not to look at our family, enjoy that family, and see how God has given us that gift so that he can be glorified and magnified within our household and then outside of our household so that others might see his good deeds and glorify the Father. 
That may seem a little foreign to you when you start thinking about, well, what does my family have to do with evangelism? What does my family have to do with showing the love of Christ? What does my family have to do with it? Let me tell you something. If you're going to treat your family bad, you're going to treat everybody outside of that family even worse. Tell me I'm wrong. Debate that with me. Well, John, you just don't know my family. Some of those people are messed up. Yes, they are. And genetically, you're part of them. Trust the science. If there are crazy people in your family, there's crazy genes in your blood. Trust the science. If you have your Bible this morning, I want you to turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul wrote two letters to the church at Thessalonica, and in these letters, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, um, you'll find those after the epistles, uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, you'll find those right after that in the New Testament. When he wrote these letters, it's somewhere around 70 to 90 A.D. Christ has, has, has been dead now for probably 50 years or so. He rose from the grave three days after his death, and now he's ascended to the Father. I said that wrong. Christ is not dead. Christ is fully alive, and because he's alive, I have hope. So, so sorry for that, that mix-up there. Let me not tell you any wrongs there. Paul writes this letter to, to, to the Thessalonian church, and what's happening there in Thessalonica is that they had been told that Christ was coming back. And since he has not come back, they're starting to lose a little confidence. They're starting to lose a little faith. They're starting to question some things they have been told about, what, uh, about this Jesus coming back. And in particular, one of their great questions was this. Well, um, we're told that if we hold on to the end, that the reward will be there for us. And what about those people who died that didn't hold on to the end? Is there a reward for them? And what happens if, if, if I die before Jesus comes back to claim his church, to, to claim his family? Where's my hope? I mean, because I'm getting a little older, or I'm not feeling so good, or things aren't happening. What happens if I die before Jesus comes back? Will I still gain the reward? Now, Give them some room because this is all new to them. This whole ideal of resurrection, this whole ideal of the Son of God coming down to earth, dying on a cross and raising uh, three days later, and then telling him the, his people he's going to come back. This whole ideal is very new to them. And they're trying to get their mind around that. Not unlike the very first time you heard the gospel, or the second time, or the third time, or the fourth time, or the 35th time where you heard the gospel and for the very first time you finally realized, hey, this Jesus died for me. And so give them a little room to kind of understand what's going on here. We're going to walk through a couple of verses here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 9, and we're just going to go a couple of verses at a time so I can kind of explain to you this gift of family and how Paul tells us, uh, not just within our nuclear family, but also the family of God, how we should watch out for one another and build one another up, and that, that the family is God's way of growing his kingdom. And it's time that we as believers who are in the family of God start practicing that more and more so that others may see how we love one another and bring them into God's grace and offer them the forgiveness that only Jesus offers. And so let's start in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9. It says this, Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. Essentially, all Paul is saying here is this, is that God teaches us to love through the example of the family. Now, just think about it for a moment. Anybody have big family reunions? They're, they're not as prominent, I've found, in the south as they are in the north or in places where people live a little bit closer together. Many years ago, I was in a little bitty town called Chautauqua, Kansas. That's where my, my mom and my dad met in, in high school. Um, a portion of the town were, were Davises from my, my dad's family and a whole bunch of them. 
And, and if you've ever met my mother, she was here a few weeks ago. I look just like her. You, you can't escape that I belong to her. She marked me up real good. And I'm walking down the street. I couldn't have been maybe 18, 19 years old. And some lady walked up to me and she goes, I know you. You're Norma Jean Owens' son, aren't you? And I said, I said yes, ma'am, I, I sure am. She goes, and, and you're Jackie's boy. Y yes, ma'am, I, I sure am. Well, are your mom and dad going to be in town for the high school reunion? I says, ma'am, is that going to be at the courthouse? And she just looked at me and, 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 and I kind of had this look of terror, like, what are you talking about? I said, because the only time my parents are in the same room is when the court requires it. I says, and it's been that way for a long time. And she just kind of said, oh, I, I, didn't, I didn't realize. And I'm like, okay, we're in a small town. You realize. You know what's up. You were digging for dirt and I caught you today, right? The, the thing of it was is that that was the unfortunate reality that my mom and dad the only time they were together after I was four years old is when the court required it. And so my ideal of family is a little bit more challenging. However, I was blessed with this great stepdad that came into my life. And my dad loved me, and we've, had that, we've talked this story before, but my stepdad raised me up to be his, his own child, and he showed me what love was. But even in the midst of his family, I saw there was just dysfunction, right? Because if there's not dysfunction in a family, there's no function at all sometimes. And we saw that. Now what Paul is saying is this, when he, when he says this in verse 9, is that through the example of family, and he's, I think he's talking in both sides of his mouth. He's talking about the, the nuclear family, but he's talking about the family of God, those who have been redeemed by Christ, who have accepted the gift of grace through, through offering the forgiveness of his blood for us. Those who are there, he is saying, listen, we want to make sure that we treat each other like family because we are all literally one blood of the blood of Jesus that covers us. And so we're related. And unfortunately, what happens is, is that when we're not treating one another the way we ought to be treating one another, when we're not treating brothers and sisters in Christ the way we ought to be treating one another, if we're not a, 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 a adapting to this adoptive family the way we ought to do so, we're not demonstrating to an outside world that this Christianity matters, that this Christianity is important, that we actually believe in this Christianity. We see this every single day, whether it be in our own families, when people look at your family from the outside and they go, man, they're messed up. I mean, go to a restaurant, especially if you're, if you're old enough to have older kids or you're a grandparent and you see how somebody else's kids are acting in a restaurant. I mean, don't tell me you don't judge them, because I do. I, I'm at a place now when they say, would you, where, where would you like to seat? Our answer is always away from children. You know, bar, first available, yeah, that's up there, but not near kids. That's just kind of where I am. I'm, I'm a grumpy old man at this point. I've raised my kids. I did a good job. So far. But it doesn't stop, does it? Some of you are still parenting your children. It doesn't stop, does it? And those kids can say some things and do some things. Shake your head. And they did it when they were three, and they'll do it when they're 30, won't they? And you don't love them any less. You don't love them any differently. You talk to them a little bit differently. You used to smack them on the hand. Now you tell them to snap out of it. And you can always play the trump card, can't you? Because I said so. Never goes out of style, does it? Because I said so. Paul's saying to them, listen, I don't have to tell you how to love one another. In fact, what I'm actually doing is I'm encouraging to love one another and to love others even more so. Because you're not doing this by yourself. 
You're doing this as a family. And so collectively, those of you who are following Christ, who, those of you who have accepted the forgiveness of Jesus, you're now part of this family. And you can't just check the box and say, I'm good. What he's saying is that I don't have to write to you about loving one another. In fact, I'm encouraging you to love one another even more so, so that when people look at you and go, there is something fundamentally wrong with you. One of the greatest challenges with Christianity uh, from about the 15th century to about the, the mid-1800s was this ideal that we were calling each other brother and sister and we were marrying one another. Okay, fair enough. That's weird in most states. But it was a problem. And what, what, we're, what we're missing out here is simply this is that when we love each other the way we ought to, it's going to get noticed. It's gonna, people are going to look into that and go, man, there's something different about you. There's something different about the way you treat each other. Now, the word brother today is kind of o widely overused. I really think it actually comes from wrestling. Some of you are there too. Yeah, brother. The macho man was there, right? But it's not impossible for us to call each other, hey, brother, how are you? Hey, that's Hey, brother, how are you? What's going on? Last week I was at the, the DMV thing. I may have shared this with you, some of you. And I was having issues with somebody in the line, and I had to bark at them because I had waited for an hour and a half to get to the front of the line and with COVID and all this stuff, and there's, like, chairs out there to get to the place. And this guy just comes up, and he begins to occupy the, the, the traffic director's time. And after about three minutes of this, I'd had enough, and I raised my voice which I've been known to do from time to time. I know that shocks you. And I just said, hey, I had everybody, 100 people in the lobby. I had everybody's attention. Sir, I've complied. I've done everything I need to do. But you're holding up this line. You need to go to the back of the line and listen to this lady. The guy got my face. Hey, I'm not done. And I just lost it. Yeah, you're done, sir. This conversation ended about 30 seconds ago. It's time for you to move on. And I'm going to go up to the front of the line. I'm going to take care of my business, and you need to go. And then his son, who's older than I am, steps in my face. And I lost it again. Boy, I remember calling him that. Don't let your second bad mistake cost you today. Back up. Meanwhile, there's this guy behind me hollering, get him, brother. <laughs> and then the guy says, sir, I've seen the guy behind me. He goes, I've seen a lot of things in my lifetime. He says, but my children will sing songs of your heroism today. <laughs> Built me up, pumped me up, made me feel good about myself. Even though I'd done something probably I shouldn't have. I maintain I used no curse words. I didn't demean the man. I just told him it was time to go. So in the story, I went up to the lady. I'm like, I'm so sorry. She goes, thank you so much. You moved the line along. I go up, the lady at the front counter, she goes, thank you so much, sir. I'm like, oh, I don't have this document. She goes, don't worry about it. We'll figure it out. Call whoever you need to, get a picture of it. Okay, we'll get it done. I turn around to leave, and the guy that was back there telling me about his children singing songs of, of me, I looked at him. I said, hey, you got my back if we go out in the parking lot? The guy's waiting on me. And he goes this. He goes, I got you, brother. Fist bumps me on the way out. Now, about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. It's interesting sometimes that when we do love each other, it's contagious and it ought to be. But so is the negative, that when we get into that place where we're, we're stirring up the negative emotions, people kind of jump on board with that too, but it usually takes somebody to lead that out. And now, in a family unit, 
Dad, your job, your role in a family is to, to demonstrate love. God set it up that way. It's been that way from the very beginning. It's part of creation order. It's to demonstrate love for your wife who is one flesh with you. It is for your children to know that you're the provider, the sustainer, and the protector of all that goes in that household. But it's also to demonstrate that when there is a need, we're to go out there and do that. And Paul is encouraging those in Thessalonica, don't worry about if God's coming back or not. Until he does, you keep loving people. And you keep doing so in such a way that it encourages them because it is going to be through your family love and the, the body of Christ in the church that other people are going to see God. They're going to see who he really is. And they're going to come to know him. And the family that God has given us, both the nuclear family of mom and dad and kids and grandparents and aunts and uncles, as well as the body of Christ, is the family example that God gives us. It's his vehicle for his kingdom to grow because people are going to look at that family and say, I want to be a part of that. I want a family like that. I want Claire Huxtable to be my mom because she's awesome. Look what it says in verse 10. He continues, he says, And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia, yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. Because family is that proving ground that strengthens our love for others. Now, don't misunderstand me. Family is not, has never been, and will never be a practice round. One of the most disturbing things I, I, I see today. Do you remember when some of you have been married 25, 30, 40 years, you, you remember the term starter house? where you would get your first house and it was usually a, a double wide or something like that and, and it was a, a little smaller or it was a little, you know, two bedroom, half bath that you had to ladle off in. I mean, some of y'all remember what this was. I, I, you, you know what your first house was. It was a starter house and your, your thought was is that we're going to buy this house, we're going to live here, but we're going to upgrade someday, right? Because I'm going to make it big. I, I, I'm going to start making money and then you get to stay home and have a bunch of kids and and, and we're going to have two-car garage, and the kids are going to play ball, and all these. you got all these plans mapped out, right? you got it all figured out because you have this starter home that doesn't cost you very much, but it's maybe a little bit more than what you probably could, but, but, but you're growing into it, right? And today, unfortunately, what we have is what's called a starter wife. That's a real term that people are using out there that are saying that, you know, I'm going to enter into this marriage, and if it doesn't work out, eh, it doesn't work out. Now, now, hear me clearly on this. I know in this congregation that many of you are on your second or your third marriage. I'm just going to be just straight up with you. I've said this before. I'm going to say it again. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. Don't let anybody tell you that. It's not God's plan. It's not what he wants. I've never met anybody who's been divorced who could honestly tell me, listen, if I could have figured out how to make that marriage work, I'd have done it. But when you get two people in a room who don't like each other or themselves very much, it's probably not going to happen. But the truth of the matter is that God can redeem that and he can fix that because even within that brokenness, there's a family there to help put the pieces back together. There's a family there that can say, this didn't work out the way we wanted it to. This is not what God's original plan was, but God's love for me did not change because of that situation, okay? So hear me loud and clear on that. It's not the unpardonable thing, but it's not God's plan. It's not what he wanted. It's not what God wanted for you. And so in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 10, we see this proving ground because we know how family can be. We know that when we do sit around the dinner table, because we only do it once or twice a year with all the extended family, and we get in the car and we drive however far back to wherever we came from and talk about why we're never going to do that again. We know this proving ground is there because that family, love them or not, knows which buttons to push and how to push them. And it's how, it's, it's how we respond to that that really matters, I think. And I think that's where we miss out some days. 
I think we miss out because we respond in anger, we respond in wrath, we respond in embarrassment, we respond in shame when we ought to be responding in love. I'm not saying be a punching bag. I'm not saying just take all the negativity and just, you know, be the doormat for anybody. I don't think that's anybody's relationship ought to be like that. But inside the family, there's a little bit more grace. There's a little bit more reality that we look at people and go, you know what? That person's hurting right now. That person's, and I know half of what's going on in the world. And part of the reason why they're acting the way they're acting right now is because their hurt is so much that they're taking the family a little bit for granted right now because they realize that no matter how bad I treat them or, or what I say to them, that's my family and they're going to love me anyway. And I don't know about you, but that's my family. That's the family I want to be a part of. I don't want to jump on people. I don't want to yell at people. I don't want to be mean to my family. But I do expect that in my family that, it, that when my emotions overcome my, my, my brain and my mouth pretty much takes over, that my family's going to look and say, you know what, he's still my family. He's a jerk, and I should have smacked him, and Mama's going to wash his mouth out with soap. I don't care how old he is, but that's family. The problem is that within the body of Christ, that we don't always demonstrate that forgiveness whenever those things happen because we're people. I've seen a many a church break apart, split, families leave. Well, I don't like this, and I don't like this, and I don't like this. You know what? Welcome to humanity. When you find perfection, I hope that you're pulling apples or whatever fruit is from the tree of life. Because until that day, you're not going to find it on this earth. You're not going to find a perfect church. You're not going to find a perfect family. You're not going to find a perfect workplace. You're not going to find a perfect team. You're not going to find anything that's perfect. People are going to get on each other's last nerves. But within the family, we get the, the gift that God gives us to demonstrate and to prove God's love and to strengthen our love for others because sometimes when you look at somebody, and parents, you can identify with this some days when you watch your kids from a distance and they're doing something you know they ought not be doing or they behave a way that you know you didn't teach them but the little boy down the street taught them how to say those words or whatever the case may be and you just look and you go, look, I know he's only five years old and he shouldn't be saying those words but I think I'm going to cut him off. No. You're going to show him grace. You're going to show him forgiveness. You're going to teach him. You're going to discipline him, right? Just like when somebody comes to faith in Christ in their 40s and they've never followed Jesus before, they've never read the Bible, they've never sat in a church, they've never had their sins called out in such a way that says this is not what God has for you, but he does offer forgiveness. Stop doing that. Don't, don't live in that sin. Don't let that sin identify you. And I know you just came to be a believer like a month ago, but you need to stop doing all these things. Look, they're infants too. They're still growing and learning. No matter how old they are, it's, it's how, how much they know Christ. And as they're growing in that relationship with Jesus Christ, they're being a part of this family, like a new member that's been adopted or drawn in or put into his baptism. That's what that word means, is to be put into the body of Christ. And inside this family, we don't condone them continuing to live like the outside world. We just work with them through that to prove to them that God's love is for real and that he has forgiven us for whatever the case may be and to help them along. I think this is a great hang-up and a lot of people looking at a church going, well, i got to fix this, i got to clean this up, and i got to do this before I go to that church and be a part of that. Those people are a whole bunch of judgy people. Yeah, other people, of course, are judgy. You better believe they are. That's not an excuse. That's just a reality. But inside this family, Paul is saying we urge you to do more and more. He's talking about more and more of growing that family and doing things together. Y'all ever take a road trip with the kids? I mean, like a long one? And, and, you know, the one where everybody's got to go to the bathroom about every 20 minutes. And there's always that kid says, I don't have to go. And you're like, you need to go now. 
I'm going to make you go. And of course, the kid doesn't go. And was it 20 minutes down the road? Hey, I got to go to the bathroom. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, we used to pull over on the side of the road. Am I, am I the only one? I think you'd get arrested for that today, wouldn't you? Seven-year-old kid arrested for urinating in public. Child taken away from parents because he had to go. We extend grace within the family because grace has been given to us. When asked about how we love one another, we realized what John wrote was that we love because he first loved us. And when we accept that as believers, that Christ loved us first, that wasn't just our way to go high five. That was the example for us to love others. Because whether they're in our family or not, there are times by which you look at people, you're around them, you have to deal with them, whatever the situation may be, and you have to get to a place and say, you know what, I don't like you very much at all. But because Christ first loved me, I love you. And to be perfectly honest, if it were up to me, I wouldn't even, I wouldn't do any, I wouldn't have anything to do with you. But that's my problem, not yours. Because what Christ has shown me in my life, and my walk with him, and my, my, my life with him is that he should not be loving me the way that he does, but he does so. And because he has extended grace upon grace, then I too ought to demonstrate that same thing. And there's no better place to do that than within the body of Christ. No place better to do that than within the body of Christ. And the example of that actually comes within our own families. When our parents or our kids or our siblings or our spouse does something that we just don't agree with, we don't just instantly stop loving someone. You extend a little grace to them. You try to walk through that together. If you really understand the idea of covenant marriage, what you understand is that when one spouse is hurting, you're both hurting. And when both spouses are hurting and there's kids involved, everybody's hurting. And when we look at the church and we see the elders, if they're not walking the way they're supposed to walk with the Lord, and we see the young ones, they're not growing up the way they're, they're supposed to, and we have to, 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 to take a look at everything and realize, what is God doing here? And where are we missing the boat? Are we extending grace? Are we loving the way we're supposed to love? Are we strengthening others within the body so that we're strong enough to extend that nuclear family a little bit? And some of you are... are, are grandparents and great-grandparents perhaps you probably remember when that child brought home that potential spouse and and, and you, you you wondered about that spouse it's fair enough that's your child right you want nothing but the best for them I remember I, I brought a, a girl that I'd just been dating a little bit home once for a weekend to, to meet my parents and my dad he had a great way of getting rid of them he would just ask one question boy what do you see in her like, man apparently nothing doesn't really matter at this point because now i gotta convince dad and i don't know if he was a psychologist by training and i just didn't know about it but man it was effective because dad was protecting me and her whether I knew it or not. But at the end of the day, I knew what dad was going to do. He was going to love me. He was going to provide for me. He was going to support me in whatever my decision was, even if he disagreed with that decision. We were going to work through that as a family. He wasn't going to cut me off. That's one of the things that we probably need to do a whole lot more in our society as a whole right now is to love even more. Look what verse 11 says. 
Verse 11 and 12 says this, And to make it your ambition to lead quiet life, you should mind your own business. Underline that, most of you. And work with your hands just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. For this, I think Paul's telling us that family is the example for others to see God's love. It's example in what we do. Now, we're going to expand on this one just a little bit here for, for a moment because I want you to fully understand what Paul is saying. Paul wrote multiple times about being a tent maker, about going to a place to share the gospel and having a job to support himself so that he wouldn't be relying upon the church or anybody else, and more so so that nobody could say to him, hey, well, listen, we, you work for us, right? We, we pay your salary while you're here doing all this other stuff, so you need to not go to these Greek people or not go to, to these, these Corinthians or not go to... To, to, to whoever these people are from Derby and Lister or whatever. You just need to talk to the Jews and nobody else because they're God's chosen people. Paul made it a point to not be dependent upon anybody so that he could share the gospel as openly as, as he could be. But he also made it a point to demonstrate to others that inside of this family, everybody pulls their weight. Everybody does their job. And so I want to show you a, a couple of things that, that, that I think may help us a little bit. And it helps me process through a little bit too about looking at our family, both our church and our nuclear families, and say, how does my family build God's kingdom? How does my family build God's kingdom? Because I think this is a legitimate question and one that does not get spoken enough about around the dinner table. And let me tell you why I think that. Because I think sometimes us good church-going folk bring our kids to church, and we kind of farm out the responsibilities of discipleship to others, which is awesome because the young women should learn from the older women and the young men should learn from the older men. And in a discipleship environment, it should be a family environment and we should all be sharpening one another, should be building one another up. We should teach them how to live and how to respond to their spouses and their kids and everything else. There should be this collectiveness that we share a set of values that are based upon the reality of, of God's word. And that's okay. Because we should hope that if we take our kids back to the children's area or if somebody's doing this women's Bible study or whatever, we're all rooted here in the same place because whatever truth they teach from God's word could be the same from this lady as it is from that lady or from this man or from whatever. I've never had a dad more mad at me in my entire life than when I bring his, his high school kid home from a mission trip and he says, man, my kid told me about this week that, that he was with you and that you told him he ought to do this and he ought to do this. And I've been telling that kid, this knucklehead, this for years. And he comes back, he tells me how awesome Mr. John is, and he tells me how to do this, 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 this. Man, you got to be the biggest jerk in the whole wide world. And I said, brother, all I'm doing is the B team is coming in and reinforcing what the A team's teaching from home. And I don't know if we're getting enough of that sometimes because the B team needs to support the A team, not the other way around. Not the other way around. So how can my family grow God's kingdom? Well, first of all, I think what we saw that in 1 Thessalonians 4, 11, and 12, we saw this. First of all, be quiet. Be quiet. We live in a day and age where we overshare a whole lot, and I understand and I appreciate that, and sometimes that's people processing. Other times we share this, and then 30 seconds later we got a different opinion. 30 seconds we're tossed to and fro like a ship on a windy, stormy sea. Sometimes it's okay just to be quiet because we don't air family problems out to the rest of the world. We don't go running around telling people at other churches what's going on in our church and why they ought not be here. We don't go digging up other stuff in other churches about why they should come here and all this other stuff. We don't do that because we don't go next door to the neighbor and tell them all the dirty little nasty secrets about our kids or about our wives or about our bank accounts, all that stuff. I think sometimes we just need to be quiet. 
I'm not saying that we should withhold things. I'm just saying you got to exercise a little wisdom because that stuff always comes back around and somebody's going to get hurt. And sometimes there's not enough I'm sorry's out there to patch up those things. It takes a little time. One of the best ways we can learn to be quiet is to be quiet with God, to spend some time with him, to take things in prayer. Hey, while I was at church the other day, this person didn't even talk to me. Or while I was at church the other day, this person said this to me. Or while I was on Facebook, I saw this the other day. Or while I was talking about this the other day. Whatever. Hey, stop. Just, just time out. Stop. Be still and know that he's God. Be still and know that he is God. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And I don't think the desires of our heart really is to hurt other people. And I really hope that our desires are not to drag people down into my level, but instead to have them drag me up to theirs or vice versa. And I think one of the best things we can do as a family, whether it be our church or a nuclear family, is just be quiet. Just be quiet and spend time with God. When email first came out, some of you probably remember this. You learn two things about email when it first came out. One, proofread it before you send it. And two, make sure caps lock's not on. The third thing we learned about email was if you can't say it to somebody's face, don't send it at all. Those rules are out the window these days because we don't even bother to, to, to let our anger subside a little bit or our frustration. We just want everybody to hurt the way we hurt. Instead of offering a little forgiveness, instead of building somebody up. My family can grow God's kingdom. Our church can grow God's kingdom by just being quiet for a moment and seeing the good things of God and realizing that every one of them outweighs all the bad things of this world. Jesus has overcome this world. And through that, we've been given the authority to do the same thing. But when we play in this world, when we adapt to this world, when we agree with this world, when we act like the world, those on the outside are not looking at the church and going, man, those people are different. They're saying, those people are just like me, so I don't need that either. I want to be better than them. And we've got a calling as a body, as a family, to be better than, don't we? We don't have the power to do that ourselves. It's Christ in us that gives us that. The second thing I think we can do is make peace. I think this is really interesting these days. Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers. What Paul said in that previous verse was about our ambition to lead a quiet life. And unfortunately, so many times we're ambitious about getting attention. We're ambitious about getting our story told. We're ambitious about everybody being on our side of the equation. And if you don't believe me, ignore one of your children just for a little bit and watch how they behave. Their ambition is to not be ignored. Their ambition is to throw a tantrum until they get what they want. Now, maybe some of you have, have, have trained that out of your children. Is that the right word I can say for today? But you know, at some point, every one of us, when we don't get what we want or things aren't going our way, our first inclination isn't just to sit down, be still, be calm, be quiet, figure out how to make peace with this. Our first ambition is to say, listen, no, no, I'm going to be heard on this. I'm going to get my way. When the flesh begins to take over, the spirit gets quenched. And when the spirit gets quenched, there's nothing about our lives individually or collectively as a family or as a church that's reflective of God's love for us. It just looks like a bunch of people who have a whole bunch of shared values, and those shared values have taken over in such a way that we've said, okay, yeah, we believe in Jesus, but let's just put him back here on the shelf so that we can all get together, and there's nothing attractive about that. I'm going to be honest with you. And today in the American church, every single church seems to be very divided about what they do or they don't believe. 
A guy named Ed Stetzer, who's one of the most brilliant people I've ever heard in my entire life. He's the chairman of the uh, uh, at, at uh, um, Wheaton College. Guy, he, he's so smart. He's chairman of the Billy Graham uh, Society for, for Evangelism. The guy's so sharp. And he said just a couple of weeks ago to a group of pastors all over the country, he said, listen, right now, more than anything else, what we're seeing is that inside the body of Christ and outside the body of Christ, that people are looking and they're deciding on single issues whether they want to be a part of your church or not. And he threw out a couple of those. The way you did or did not respond on masks, the way you do or do not respond on vaccines, the way you did or did not respond on race, the way you do or, or do not respond on, on, on the economy, the way you do or do not respond to politics. They're looking at all of those things, and they're deciding whether the pastor in that church, wherever they may be on just one of those issues, they're single, literally single-issue voters, wherever they stand on that thing, they're out. And it's, it's an easy discussion because the last thing they want to do is walk into an environment where they may have an opposing opinion or a differing opinion and, and, and try to come in and feel loved when actually they're, they're, they're looking for a reason to feel isolated and pushed aside. Guilty. Individually, guilty. As your pastor, guilty. You better believe I've got views that I know that I don't agree with some of you on and some of you don't agree with me on. I know the rest of the world does and doesn't agree with some of those things too. You better believe that's true. That's humanity. We're in an imperfect, imbalanced world that is fighting against itself, that has been taken away from the goodness and the glory of God. But I'm going to tell you something. we got far more important things to be divided about than what we do or don't think about some of those issues I just mentioned. Particularly when those things are temporary, very temporary, and they're going to change and shape the way other things are out there. This Equality Act that's coming right now before Congress, church, I'm begging you to read that thing. I'm begging you. Because what this single piece of legislation is probably going to do to the United States, it's going to take an attack against civil liberties and against religious liberties like no other legislation ever has. And you want to talk about what's going to divide the church even more so? It's going to be whenever the church gets up and starts looking like the rest of the world. And we have to start saying, Jesus, she might have been a good person. I'm really not interested in getting to a place where everybody's all warm and fuzzy and cozy. But I'm going to tell you something. We need to make peace where there's peace to be made. We need to accept peace where there's peace that can be given. But we need to stand on the rock-solid foundations of the truth. And, and the worst thing is that Jesus was very clear about this. And he said, I didn't come to make peace, I came to make division. But whenever it is possible for you, live in peace with those around you. Church, let's don't go stirring a pot that's not worth stirring. Let's stand for the principles of what we ought to be standing for. After all, we wouldn't expect anything less inside of our own families, would we? And I know it's hard because we've got so many things coming into our world. The last thing I want to put up there, and this is my favorite one, is mind your own business. I can probably just stop there. Mind your own business. I think Paul is saying a couple of things here, and I'm going to say it as well. When we mind our own business, one of the things we're pushing against is not just staying isolated and staying apart from. In fact, we're told that we need to operate and function within the rest of this world. We've got to do business. We've got to do trade. We have to see these people. We have to love on them. We have to care for them. We have to provide for them. We have to look out for them. But we don't need to gossip. We don't need to get ourselves in bad situations. We need to earn our keep. We need to make sure that we're watching our mouth and we've got to do what's right. Nowadays, more than ever, when people look at our family, 
and they see what's going on, there's a great decision, a great discussion, a great challenge that's happening. Paul would go on and he would write a second letter to the Thessalonians. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 9 through 13, he says this, and I'm going to put it on the screen. And he's, he's, he's giving a warning to them about how they ought to continue living because Christ hasn't come back yet. And if you die before Christ comes back, until that happens, you need to find, if he comes back, how will he find you? And he says this, he says, we did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. We hear that some among you are busybodies idle and disruptive. They're not busy, they're busybodies. Such people we command and urge you in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down, earn the food they eat, and as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. If I were to sit down and look at my family, if there was anything I wanted to make sure my kids knew before they went out of the world, it would be that passage of Scripture right there. You work, you treat others with respect, you take it on the chin sometimes when you need to, you don't expect others to do for you or to give to you because of your entitlement or who you are. You mind your own business. You earn your own keep. You do what is right. You teach everybody around you that you love God and who he's for. Many of you probably know who Mahatma Gandhi was. He, he was a, an Indian prophet, basically. And he was actually addressed with the reality of Christianity. He was told about Jesus, but this is what he said about Christians. Some of you probably read this quote before. He says this. He says, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. I believe that as a dad, that my, parent, my, my children reflect me because of what, they've taught, what I've taught them and what they've taught for me. That's not always positive. But sometimes it is. And I pray I did more good than bad. And I pray that where I messed up, that God's word corrects because I've taught them how to go to the source before they go to the dad. And I hope they'll do that. But church, as Mahatma Gandhi said that back in the 50s and 60s, I think it was. Today, the, the world is looking at the church and they're wondering, do we really love the way we say we do? If we really love the way we said we would, then we would, we would be tolerant about this, we'd be tolerant about that, we'd be tolerant. No, 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 friends, that's not the case. If we really love the way we're supposed to according to Scripture, it would have nothing to do with tolerance. It would have everything to do with truth. It would have everything to do with us standing for the principles of what God has said to be true, and we're going to live our life and suffer the consequences of that with the right heart and the right attitude. And when persecution comes to us, we will be given the words and wisdom of what to say. Not if, but when. Because the best way for us to look like our, to, to not get persecuted is to look like our persecutors. And I think even Gandhi had that figured out back then when he looked at Christians and he says, you're not like your Christ who died for you and saved you from an eternity without him. Family was God's vehicle for growing his kingdom. And the principles and the lessons that we teach inside the family and inside the church continue to spread out. Because family matters. Family matters in a big way. And every one of our families are messed up. And they all have some abnormalities to them. And things aren't always going to work out. Well, there's no better place for grace to really abide than inside of the family. That's why when John 13, 35 says this, by this everyone will know that you're Christians by how you love one another. Isn't that really what we ought to be doing? 
Isn't that really what we should be doing in our, around the dinner table, around the communion table on Sunday morning, whenever that case may be? God gave us the gift of family because it matters, and he gave us the gift of family so that we might demonstrate to the rest of the world his love for us, and they might want some of that. And so my challenge to you this morning is that you would go home and you would think about how you personally interact with Christ and how your family interacts with Christ and how you come back from the things where you didn't get it right because it happens and what you're going to do next. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we thank you for the gift of family. And Lord, we confess that family has